Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, if corporate news media didn't matter, we wouldn't talk about them. But elite, moneyed outlets do, of course, direct public attention to some issues and not to others, and suggest the possibility of some social responses, but not others. It's that context that the African-American Policy Forum hopes folks will bring to their new book, based on years of research, called Say Her Name, Black Women's Stories of Police Violence and Public Silence. It's not, of course, about excluding black men and boys from public conversation about police violence, but about the value of adding black women to our understanding of that phenomenon as a way to help make our response more meaningful and impactful. If along the way we highlight that ignoring the specific intersectional meaning that policies and practices have for women who are also black, well, that would improve journalism too. We'll talk about Say Her Name with one of the key workers on that ongoing project, Kevin Manofu, Senior Research and Writing Fellow at African American Policy Forum. That's coming up this week on Counterspin, but first, a quick look back at some recent press. After its embarrassing town hall with Donald Trump, which helped precipitate the downfall of chair and CEO Chris Licht, CNN has doubled down on the format, at least for Republican candidates. As Julie Holler writes for FAIR.org, since Trump's May 10th appearance, the network has featured GOP candidates Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, and Chris Christie, and more are promised. Curiously, however, no offers to Democratic or third-party candidates have been announced, inviting the question, what purpose do these town halls serve? Everyone knows the non-journalistic chaotic evil that ensued from CNN's May 10th Trump rally, starting but not ending with the floor manager's instructions to the audience that while applause was permitted, booing was not. The network's ratings plunged after the fact, and CEO Licht was dropped like a suddenly hot rock. CNN anchor Anderson Cooper shook a finger at the many, many, many people mad about a nominally news outlet hosting what was essentially a Trump rally. He went on air to scold, quote, Many of you felt CNN shouldn't have given Trump any platform to speak. Do you think staying in your silo and only listening to people you agree with is going to make that person go away? Close quote. But Julie Holler asks, what democratic norms require offering a serial liar a town hall stuffed full of supporters in which the audience is instructed that applause is welcomed but booing is forbidden. In what way exactly does that serve the public interest? In reality land where one hopes reporters would live, you would be hard-pressed to find a living soul who doesn't know exactly who Trump is and who his supporters are and how they can be expected to behave. 
that the town hall was devoid of thoughtful policy discussions, but chock-a-block with insults and falsehoods surprised no one. Well, some of Trump's Republican challengers have broken with him to some extent, though few are risking alienating his followers by forcefully denouncing his lies. Still, CNN's own fact checks of his subsequent GOP town halls showed that Haley, Pence, and Christie were also permitted numerous falsehoods without real-time challenge by their journalist hosts. Haley, for instance, claimed that crime is at all-time highs. That's false. That Roe versus Wade made abortion anytime, anywhere, for any reason the law of the land. That's not even close to true, according to CNN's own fact checks, and that the U.S. is very good when it comes to emissions, while the Chinese and Indians are the problem. That's seriously misleading, as the U.S. is second to China in total current emissions, with India well in third place, and the U.S. has much higher total historical emissions, much higher per capita emissions than China or India. But Jake Tapper, the host, didn't push back against any of those claims. Or look at Mike Pence's town hall, in which he announced that inflation is at a 40-year high. Well, no, that's not true. The inflation rate has actually fallen for 10 straight months. He said the Trump Pence family separations at the border began under Obama, and Trump and Pence simply continued them. That's also false. And that the Trump administration reduced CO2 emissions beyond what the previous administration had committed to just through American innovation, through expanding American energy and natural gas. Well, CNN didn't actually fact-check that one, but it's obviously and overtly false. But host Dana Bash didn't challenge any of those statements either. Lest you think it's kind of all-purpose laziness, Julie Holler points out that CNN has announced no plans to give any Democratic or independent candidates town halls. In that case, they somehow find some principles. For instance, CNN's Jake Tapper has declared that on principle he'd never be part of a town hall with Robert Kennedy because Kennedy spreads dangerous misinformation, which absolutely he certainly does. But if the concept doesn't apply to Donald Trump, how is that a principle and not just a preference? The public does need to understand the candidates they'll be choosing from next year, which means news outlets have to offer them a platform. But the kind of platform offered is crucial. In the Trump era, town halls just don't offer the tools necessary to hold politicians accountable, whether those politicians are Trump or Kennedy or DeSantis or Biden. Good journalism demands direct encounters with politicians with incisive, probing questions that speak to people's actual needs and concerns, and real-time fact-checking, or if it's TV, maybe a taped format with fact-checking provided prior to airing. If 
presidential candidates or political candidates of any stripe can't agree to a platform that can hold them accountable, well, then maybe they don't deserve to have a media platform at all. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Like most powerful exercises, it's a simple one. Professor and legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw asks audience members to stand as she lists names of black people killed by law enforcement in this country and to sit when they hear a name that they don't recognize. For Eric Garner, George Floyd, Michael Brown, most of the crowd... Whatever crowd it is, students, academics, the general public, stay standing. But when it gets to Sandra Bland, Atiana Jefferson, it thins and thins. And by the time it gets to Rakia Boyd and Michelle Cousseau, generally everyone is seated. Is that because black women's deaths via the same state-sanctioned violence that kills black boys and men are less compelling? Are the victims less worthy? Or do they somehow not matter? It's hard to tease out and to talk about what's happening. But if we genuinely want to address racist police violence and bring all of us into the imagined future, we have to have the conversation. The Say Her Name project from the African American Policy Forum, on whose board I serve, has worked to lift up the names of women, trans women, and girls killed by law enforcement on and off duty, and to talk about how their murders are the same as and different from police murders of black men and boys. That project is now reflected in a book, Say Her Name, Black Women's Stories of Police Violence and Public Silence, out this week from Haymarket Books. Joining us now is Kevin Manofu, Senior Researcher and Writing Fellow at the African American Policy Forum. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Kevin Manofu. Hi, Janine. It's a pleasure to be on. I'm very, very grateful for for you making the time. And um, yeah, great to be on the show. Absolutely. Well, as you and I both know, the Say Her Name project encompasses activism, art, research and writing and support for families, you know. But the heart of it, the radiating center, is still this really simple thing. Say her name. Why is that so meaningful? I think in describing that, it's kind of useful to go back to the origins of the movement because people are always interested in in how it developed. People have probably heard about it, but oftentimes maybe confused about its history. And so Say Her Name developed around December 2014 during the protests that uh, were ignited in, in New York City after the acquittal of the police officer who had killed Eric Garner. At the march where thousands of protesters from across the country of all ages and all races joined together and were standing up against police violence, uh, against black people, and mentioning the, the names of men who had been killed by police violence. In the context of that protest, 
the African American Policy Forum went uh, at the protest trying to uplift the names of women who had been killed by police violence. And so in the process of being in part of that activity, we were saying the names of these women, saying their names out loud, and looking at the looks of, of a lack of recognition, of confusion from the other participants at this protest. And I think that was emblematic of the erasure of these stories and the ways in which, by saying the names of these women, we were speaking to them into existence in people's minds, into people's memories, and making them understand a problem that up until then they hadn't been able to see. There's a thing that we talk about, the loss of the loss, which is, you know, there's a horror that happens, obviously, when somebody is killed by police and where you understand that it's emblematic of the worthlessness of black lives in terms of law enforcement in this country. But when it's a black woman or a trans woman or a girl and then it doesn't get acknowledged, there's like a deeper level of loss there, right? And that's kind of what this project is about. Exactly. So as the voice described it, you know, there's the immense loss of what it means for a person to lose a, a daughter, a mother, a sister, a friend in their families. These are women who all had incredibly full lives. Lots of them had children, were all loved by family members and the communities. So there's that loss that everyone who's been through, who grief or has lost someone unexpectedly will suffer. And I think that loss is exacerbated by the fact that these are women who were killed by the same institutions that are designed to protect them. So the police officers that we entrust with the safety of our communities and in our neighborhoods and in our cities are the people who are responsible for taking away these lives. And then once we understand that loss, there's the secondary loss that the family members are burdened with, which is the loss of their loss. So their loss is not legible to people. People don't recognize that this is something which is a tragedy. People don't recognize that that's something which is a problem. People don't recognize the injustice of being killed. If you are in the case of uh, one of the women, Miriam Carey, who was killed while driving with her 18-month-year-old child by the Secret Service in front of the White House. If you're killed like India Kega, who was also driving with her son in Virginia Beach and killed in a hail of bullets. If you're killed in the context of your own home over what was outstanding traffic violation like current games. So an inability for the general public to see the horror of these deaths and the loss that those deaths have on the family members that survive is what we like to term the loss of the loss and why this book is such a big intervention to try and publicize and get that loss into the public's attention. And to inform the conversation about state-sanctioned police violence against black people. But I just, I want to say, let me just intercede early. I want us to dispense early with the idea that Say Her Name is somehow an invidious project. And I think some listeners might be surprised to hear, but we know that this project has been met with the idea that if you are uplifting the names of black women and girls who have been killed by police, that somehow that means you don't think it matters that black men and boys have been killed by police, you know. But I will say, has having done a lot of looking into media coverage of the issue, 
very early on, we absolutely saw the question of state-sanctioned police violence as a question about police killing black men and boys. And to the extent that women were in the conversation, they were mothers and wives and sisters of black men who were the victims of state violence. And so let's just address the fact that this is not about saying that black men and boys are not also. I think that's a very vital thing to add and thanks for making that, Janine, because the whole impetus of this campaign is Understanding that our politics needs to, we need to expand the scope of our politics, not just replace the names that we include. So we're not just replacing black women and black men in the conversation, but understanding that we need to have a gender-inclusive understanding of police violence. So, of course, we know that cross-racial groups, that men are killed more, more often. Black men are killed more than any other race and gender group. But we do know that that the disproportionate, that is a black woman, black women only re- represent about 10% of the female population in the United States, yet account for one-fifth of all women killed by the police. Um, more so, research suggests that three out of five black women who are killed by police are unarmed. So there's a particular vulnerability to being a black woman that exacerbates the chance of of being in a deadly and a lethal police encounter that other women don't face and even a lot of um, men don't face as well. So being able to speak about that is able to make us understand how we should be able to hold the death of George Floyd in conversation with the death of Breonna Taylor, which happened only a couple of months before George Floyd was killed. So that is the point and the impetus of our project. Well, and also a problem that is not named, is not studied, is not addressed... And then it's easier for people to say it's not really a problem because we don't have any data on it. So part of this is just to actually just collect some numbers and to say this is happening. Absolutely. The kind of driving mantra of our work and our broader work of the policy forum is that we can't fix a problem that we can't see, that we can't name. And so being able to speak about, maybe to give a bit of background, this book is building on work that we did in 2015, which was the inception of our Say Her Name report. The Say Her Name report there looked at the ways in which black women were killed. So, for example, driving while black is something that we have a context for and understanding for from looking at the history of how people commonly understand police violence. But looking at, for example, how often black women who are in a mental health crisis are killed, that expanded the scope of how we understood police violence because not a lot of people would understand that black women are often killed by the police when they actually ask for help. So giving ourselves these frames for understanding the ways in which this problem occurs both gave us a comparison to link it back to the ways in which we commonly understand it and also expanded the scope for how we wanted to respond to the crisis. We absolutely. There is a narrative which maybe some listeners are not privy to or don't understand, but there is a dominant narrative in which black men who are killed by police are victims of state violence, but black women who are killed, eh, what did they do to get themselves killed? And so introducing both the mental health vector, but just there's meaning in saying that it's both the same. It's, you know, racist police violence is similar. And then there are also distinctions. And if we don't pay attention to them, then we can't address them. I think part of that work has been, there's a policy intervention that is required, of course, 
there's legislation both across the country and in certain states that needs to be affected to change this. But a big part of this is also just a narrative shift. So it's how the media reports on the ways in which black women are killed or reports on the science reporting them at all. I mean, I think the Breonna Taylor example is like is indicative of that. The fact that Breonna Taylor was, was killed in, in March and very little was made of the fact at the time from a, on a national scale. And then a few months later, that's when her name joined that conversation. You know, the fact that Tanisha Anderson was killed only a few days before Tamir Rice was killed by the same police department. The ways in which the media can actually just do their job better to make sure that we have a more capacious and broader frame of police violence and are able to tell the stories of these women in, in a way that doesn't show deference to the narrative that emanate from police sources and, you know, show the full beauty of their lives. So important. To come back to the book specifically, this book is not it's not just a book. It's meant to be a tool. You know, it's not meant to just kind of sit on a shelf. And Fran Garrett, who is the mother of Michelle Cousseau, who was killed by law enforcement, she talks in the book about how things are actually different based on the work around, say, her name and how the mental health response in her community, which happens to be Phoenix, Arizona, but now mental health wellness orders are handled differently. And it's not necessarily law enforcement that comes first to your door. So the book is a way of of also encouraging action. It's not just documentation of sad things. It's about how to make things different. Absolutely. At the heart of the book, and I would encourage all your listeners to, to go out and get it at a bookstore near you and online. At the heart of the book is the Sehene Mothers Network. The Sehene Mothers Network is formed not long after the inception of the Sehene movement, and it represents mothers, daughters, sisters, family members who have lost women to police violence. And that community has existed and has existed as a source of advocacy, a source of community. It's connected them to women across the country from Virginia to California, from New York to Texas. It shows that there is a community out there and through this community and then particularly through storytelling, artivism, using art to disrupt popular narratives. We released a song with Janelle Monet, who also wrote the forward for the book called Say Her Name, Here You Talk Tom About. And that's designed to just, you know, all of these narrative interventions uh, the seed for what becomes policy and actually becomes change. You know, this is a it's a historical project that Black people have been doing in this country since our arrival, and the great Black feminist legacy that brings this book into fruition. And then just on media, I think some listeners might think, well, media are covering police violence against Black women, and what they might be thinking about is these terrible wrenching videos, you know, or these just horrible images of black women being abused by law enforcement. And, you know, we want to be careful about this, because I think for a lot of people, that might look like witnessing, you know, that might look like seeing what's happening. But that can't be the end of the story. And certainly for journalists, the responsibility of reporters, but also for all of us is to not just look at it, but to do something about it. And I wonder if you were talking to reporters or thinking about journalism generally, what would be 
just kind of your thoughts about what would be actually righteous response to what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the, of, of course we live in a in an age of spectacle, and um, there is still a great spectacle to black suffering, and the visibility of that that has increased with the internet and social media has been important in being able to document abuses and violence across the country. But the story can't end there. It can't end there at just that particular moment. You know, if this was a camera shot. The camera needs to be expanded to look at the dynamics of the communities, the relationship between police forces and these communities, and the patriarchal relationship between the male police officers and women, the racialized relationship between a police force which has been designed to serve white interests and black communities. And so to do the vital work of understanding what led to that situation, what led to the, you know, the, the black girl being violently dragged out of a classroom or beaten for swimming or killed in a part of the misguided war on drugs. You know, to understand that broader story is kind of the vital work of journalism that we need at the moment and the vital work that is actually going to save lives. Well, do you have any final thoughts, Kevin Manofu, about this importance and the place of this intervention in the public media conversation about say her name and about police violence against black women. Any final thoughts? I think the Hening book is, as I said, it features different interviews with uh, members of Say Her Name Network. And so just hearing those stories and actually getting behind a new story and learning about the lives that should have been is really important for everyone to be able to contextualize and humanize the women that, uh, that form part of the network and this broader movement. And look at the ways in which the knowledge that is being lifted up here is vital to us understanding racism, sexism, and at the same time, while being cognizant of the fact that like that is the precise knowledge which, at the moment, with a backlash to what is termed wokeness across the country, is attempting to erase. I can imagine that the content of the CNN book would inflame the sensitivities of various conservatives and the right-wing people that are attempting to silence our ability to speak about our circumstances because they don't want us to change it. So in this context of that environment, reading this book, sharing it with your communities, letting people know about the problem, letting people know that to truly respond to structural racism, to racial injustice, we have to have a gender-expansive, gender-inclusive understanding of it. I think that's the work, that's the kind of mission of Say Her Name, and um, we've been very grateful to be supported by um, the public so far, and we've seen the movement grow, but you know, there's still so much work to be done, and that's the work that we're excited to continue. We've been speaking with Kevin Manofu, Senior Research and Writing Fellow at the African American Policy Forum. You can learn more about this work on the website, aapf.org. Thank you so much, Kevin Manofu, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks, Janine. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced each week by the Media Watch Group Fair, based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.